This is the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Eggenhart. And I'm Andrew Conway. Let's get on with the show. This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anybody in English football. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. It's the history of the Tottenham. (laughs) (laughs) But this action is really incredible. Incredible. If you don't know the answer to that question, then I think you, you, you are an ostrich. This weekend saw the unusual schedule of the majority of Premier League games taking place at Sunday 2pm instead of the traditional Saturday 3pm. Has the league suddenly accidentally stumbled into a way around the blackout rule in the future? Yeah, you could probably argue that it has. Like, I think there is mitigating circumstances and the the Europeanisation of midweeks if that's the correct term for it, of, of having Europa League, Europa Conference League, as well as Champions League games uh, in the midweek, forcing, you know, a lot of games we played on Sunday might make it a bit more economical for everybody involved to kind of switch the default time to the Sunday. And, and it, it satisfies the TV companies. It probably satisfies the majority of teams um, to get that extra rest day, especially if they're playing in European football during the week. I'm sure, um, you know, the likes of Liverpool... Uh, who who played at lunch? Was it them that played at lunchtime on Saturday? Um, it was Burnley um, Brentford were the three o'clock game, and then it was Liverpool Brighton were at twelve thirty. Yeah, so I'm I'm sure Liverpool would prefer that they you know maybe that match is played a bit later on a Sunday at a default time that would be accessible to TV viewers rather than play three days after they played a tough European game. Um, but we yeah it's it's there to be seen like maybe they have stumbled across something it is it's not the last time or it's not the first time rather uh, that they we've had this kind of conglomeration of, of of matches all on at the same time on a Sunday it won't be the last um, whether it becomes the norm is I suppose up to Sky yeah like the the main reason this happened is because a lot of clubs had to play midweek because of the COVID disruption that we had earlier in the mm-hmm. year and teams still catching up games and we we'll see a bit more of that again this week uh, with some just kind of random games happening like oh those those two teams play oh okay um, mm-hmm. like there were a good few on on Wednesday so then you know they, they consider Wednesday to Saturday too tight of a turnaround <laughs> except for uh, you know unless you're Liverpool um, so they put them on mm. on Sunday instead. So that that that's why I assume most games were played at Sunday at two two p.m. But because they get moved from Saturday three p.m. to a different time slot, those mm. games are considered still part of the blackout rule because no one's paid to to show them, um, and and they don't auction them off for a set price after the fact, which mm. always seemed unusual to me. Like they're just leaving money on the table there. Um, and and yeah. ultimately it comes back to the fact that I do think that it's ridiculous that there are so many Premier League games untelevised because ultimately they are leaving so much money on the table there uh, even when they're already making so much uh, it's like a, a very bizarre uh, example of a lack of greed uh, which is very rare <laughs> in football I guess um, self-control you know it's an amazing thing yeah and like I kind of get that uh, there's a tradition around Saturday 3 o'clock on, in, in, in England and obviously I think the rest of the divisions should all maintain that as their time but I think Sunday 2pm like it, it's still kind of a decent time like it's easy to get to and from um, places in the UK for 2 o'clock and then get home from 4 o'clock mm. so it's not I don't think putting out that many supporters is just a matter of do you sacrifice a Sunday now instead of a Saturday, which I suppose might annoy some people, but really, 
you can just move your Sunday activities to a Saturday, maybe. I don't know um, uh, the logistics of that. Um, I'm sure it will vary from person to person. But I could definitely see this being an avenue that the Premier League kind of, it's it just a light bulb goes off there somewhere and goes, hang on a second, what if we just normalize Sunday 2pm, we can keep uh, Super Sunday as the thing where they have one flashy big game on and then the big game at half four um, and, and then just kind of quietly televise the rest of them on like the red button or something. Like, I think, yeah, all of that is true, Declan. I, they could do all of that or they could get rid of the blackout rule on a Saturday and then keep everything relatively the same because a lot of the reasons of, of like obviously there's European football there's Covid and everything like that that probably caused this weekend but for the most part 3 o'clock on a Saturday probably works for everyone and if you got rid of the blackout rule maybe Saturday would become a bit more of a a set time to watch football the way it is in Germany and other countries around the place yeah the the only reason I wouldn't suggest that is just because I don't really see that coming in like there's always been a well, they few... had the opportunity last year and they didn't do it <laughs> like I thought they would have done it but... I think that does kind of kill any conversation around just removing the blackout rule so um you know I, I don't really have any opinions on it other than it shouldn't affect me over here in Ireland and not being able to watch the three o'clock games is very annoying um but mm. you know I'm not really gonna go in there and say well the UK should change this law to suit me or whatever so um Ah, uh, you should, you should. <laughs> Maybe I should. I've said it before, so, uh, you know, I'm just kind of mellowing out on that, I believe. <laughs> um, but uh, moving on to the on-pitch action, then, uh, not, a, not a whole lot to get through here. It's more off-pitch action this week, I guess. But um, it was a pretty bad week for Spurs, because they lost at Old Trafford 3-2. But not only that, but Arsenal, West Ham, Wolves, they all won as well. So, um, you know, another setback in their top four hopes. Yeah, like they they played against what was I don't know what you would call them, but I I think a, a mostly poor Manchester United side. I think they were at some of their their best and worst in this game. Obviously, their their conversion of chances and creating of opportunities, and some of the players even like and and Fred, I I note out for this, um, um, especially in this game. Um, but they were terrible going in in defense. Um, offered very little. Uh, were dominated for large parts of the game. And and Spurs really had them there for the taking, but they they did their what they normally do and Spurs it up and and present Cristiano Ronaldo was well one of them was a pretty supreme goal, uh, the first opening goal where he just had a it was described as a free kick that was wasn't a free kick he kind of created his own position outside the box and launched one in from from a fair distance out past the goalkeeper, uh, but the other two were very much uh, I think. Tottenham's own creation there were goals where Tottenham were on the upper hand they had just equalised I think on both occasions roughly or there was a bit of different dif- distance in the third goal but you know they were in the game they were challenging for it they were going for the win and just let Manchester United creep back into the game where they would show no threat at all in the time p- prior to it um, and I think that was a bad sign for Spurs going into the to the business end of the, of the Premier League um, season yeah, like the game slightly reminded me of when Arsenal played at the yeah. at Old Trafford, where whoever was in the lead kind of sat back, and then as soon as they were pegged back, they went out and attack again, and like immediately scored. Because like Man United, obviously they took the lead at one nil, but then they really sat back and allowed Tottenham back into the game, and it was just a matter of time before they got they got the goal, even if it was a penalty. Like you could see it was coming. And then immediately they like got a second goal and made it two one again, Man United. So it was really weird how like. So they just flipped the switch and started attacking more, and they actually just found it very easy to get mm-hmm. through Tottenham. So, um, you know, in that sense, it was pretty poor game management for Man United. Um, you know, how much of that was down to 
what Ragnik wanted them to do and how much of that was just down to a nervousness, I suppose, that Man United kind of play with these days. And, you know, you can kind of see, especially when they defend, that there's definitely a, a, just an air of caution around everything they do, especially yeah. after, you know, the high-profile loss that they had last week. Um, but going forward, like, they, they still looked solid enough. Um, you know, obviously they were without Bruno Fernandes, who tested positive for COVID on the day or whatever. Um, or the day before, so you know, even with that, even with him missing, and he's been such a talisman for them, you know, they were still in attack pretty good. But then, as soon as Tottenham actually had a sustained spell of possession, um, you know, it just seemed like a matter of time before Tottenham would score. Until I suppose at three-two, uh, they brought on what was it, Lindelof or Ronaldo? I think they subbed immediately, uh, and and that did that. That was actually a pretty good substitution, I thought. Yeah. Well, yeah, it kind of just shut up any any type of uh, avenues Spurs had to actually get in and to the box, which is where they needed to be to score a goal. I find Spurs' approach very strange, to be honest, um, because Manchester United's weakness is probably through that centre of midfield um, and then spreading out wide and stretching play for, for the kind of slower players United have in their defensive third. But Spurs didn't really do that. They played so compact in a counter-attack and it did work out for them in a lot of the game. In a lot of the game they created a lot of chances just by having Kul- 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 whatever his name is. What's his name? <laughs> Kulisevsky. Kul- yeah, I can't say his name. And Son run either side of him. I think they had a fine game, but like Spurs' midfield was non-existent. And really, it only their only kind of challenge in that area came from players like Kulievs, whatever his name is, the ginger Swede, and 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 Son and and Kane dropping very deep into midfield to kind of be part of a of a, a triumphant that that will put pressure around Matic and indeed Fred and and Pogba at times, but nobody else in that Spurs group kind of did that. The only outlets then were the were the wing backs when they occasionally would get forward at Darty and, and, and maybe Reggie Young or Davis on the on the left hand side, whoever was kind of rotating into the more attacking role. It it just didn't make sense for me. It kind of looked like Conte is trying to implement something but it wasn't really working and maybe Old Trafford away from home in an important match isn't the time to be trying out those things. Yeah, like it was a really weird game in that like whenever when Tottenham got their two goals, they both seemed deserved at the time for the amount of pressure they were putting on Man United and the way yeah. that they were able to control the game. But they scored a penalty in an own goal and I don't remember David A having to do too much in the rest of the game. Like they definitely created chances or they just kinda of put the ball wide or whatever, but but in terms of just actually testing Daea, they didn't no, do a, a huge line, amount. Yeah. A few long shots that would he would save comfortably or he said near misses that would go wide. Um, yeah, there wasn't much there once they got into those positions. They they found it hard to break into the box, really. That's what I'm saying, is they had no cohesive attack to them. It was all, like, hate and hope kind of runs uh, off the right and the left with the two wingers and hoping someone would be there to, to finish it off. But, like, I remember, was it uh, Doherty at one stage cutting in on his left to hit the most tame shot in the world at, at De Gea? Mm. And that was the sum of, I think, their their attacking prowess in the game. Yeah, and like this is continuing the pattern, I suppose, at Spurs, where their last 15 games, I think it goes win-loss, 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 until somewhere in the middle there's two losses in a row, and then it's, oh. and then it's swaps, or swaps to lose, win, lose, win. So um, that that's a very long-winded way of saying they're very inconsistent at the moment. They, they just yeah. can't there's string a new together. Everton. They can't string together any wins. Um, you know, it's really costing them. Like the funny thing is, they still have I think three games in hand on May nine. If they win all three, they'll go above them. But right now, you just couldn't. You couldn't say that they'd win any of those games, alone all three. So um, yeah, they're top four. They, would, they have two games in hand at the two, moment okay. and f- five points behind. And one of those is is against Arsenal. Yeah. 
I don't, I don't remember the other. So like that, that again just speaks to you. Like you just wouldn't trust them to to win those two games to move above no. Man United, and then there's still Arsenal then ahead again. Uh, obviously, though they do play Arsenal again, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, really, it's just hard to see how they break into the top four with the way their form has been, which is um, very disappointing for them. Considering you know Conte, I do think has improved the team since coming in. Like the. That when you consider how bad, oh. yeah, when you consider how bad they were, like he's definitely built some kind of solid foundation there that they just top the league in August. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but they just uh, they're they're such a weird team where you can see like they're doing things that are right, and you can see Conte's having an impact, and they've had some very good individual performances, and obviously that Man City game they were very good, but they just can't string it together consistently, and it's really costing them. Yeah, they've got a lot of players, a lot of good players in that squad, but they don't really know what they're doing with them. I think I think Conte is too new in the job to to figure out everything. I think he's trying to establish a a, a back three as the standard formation again, um, which I know was kind of happening anyway under under Nuno. But he, he's definitely made that, that this is who I'm playing in this back three, and this is my these are my wing backs. Um, he he's kind of trusted in 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 Davis and Reguilón and Doherty to be those players for him. Um, but the rest of the team, I'm not really sure about. Like, obviously, you have Song and Kane, who are uh, who are unquestionable, and Kulievsky, who is, I think, a very good player, if lacking in the in the killer instinct in front of goal, which I think is what's you know made what's meant that he's ended up at Tottenham and, and been sold away from Juventus. But the rest, like the rest of the whole squad, isn't really there in the way that even West Ham are, and that they, you know, their identity, you know what kind of football they're going to play, you know their midfield, their attack, their defence, their goalkeeper, where their strengths lie, where their weaknesses lie. With Tottenham, you don't really know any of that outside of the obviously the the big guys up front. It's it's kind of like, oh, what what is my what are their strengths here? What are they going to do here? Even for the players themselves and the team, they they kind of there's a bit of uncertainty when they're moving forward or even when they're moving in defence. Where guys are going to be, where they're going to mark on on set pieces, as we saw, um, and even on you know the line and stuff like that. That's and that second goal for Manchester United is almost unforgivable for for the way the players aren't in tune at those moments in time and I think that's um, rookiness really from, from that manager and um, Conte in this case from not getting his message across that quickly to stay switched on um, but yeah like we'll, we'll see they have a relatively easy run in uh, I don't know if there is an easy run in in Premier League they, they've got 11 matches left um, and I, as you say they, they play against Arsenal um, in, in those games but apart from that they have a relatively straightforward bottom 10 uh, teams to play uh, for the most part, I think. Um, well, they have West Ham coming so, up as well next week. Yeah, which is a classic uh, London derby. But after the last 10 games after that are relatively okay for them. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how, th- how things develop for them. Um, the the thing to be noted in the top four race, I think, is, you know, as you said, everyone else won apart from, apart from Spurs in this race. Um, but like, how do you see it happening now? Arsenal are three games in hand over Manchester United. Although you know, acknowledging that the three game three games are basically against Chelsea, Liverpool, and Tottenham um, for Arsenal, but they're clear. They are one point clear Manchester United, so they can afford to lose those three games and still be in fourth place. Do you think that puts them into pole position? Yeah, like I think that they are also just playing the best football of those teams at the moment. Like they're they're on a very good run of wins right now. Like I can't remember the last time they dropped points. It's been a while. 
and and like I think that they've deserved to win those games as well. Like they're playing quite nicely. They're, they everything seems to be clicking for Arteta at last in terms of performances. You know, there's a good squad harmony there as well. Like Odegaard, I think I saw at the weekend was claiming it's the it's the best atmosphere he's had in a dressing room so far in his career. Um, you know, he's not exactly the oldest player in the world, so you know, take that with a grain of salt. But mm. it, it, it bodes well. Um, you know, and everyone seems very happy for everyone at the club. So it's definitely the most positive I've been on Arsenal in quite a while. Um, but those games are, are, are difficult yeah. and, and yeah, they, they do are. have to play Man United as well which could end up being yep. a bit of a playoff I think that's at the end of April so we don't know where either team will be at that point so I think that could end up being kind of the deciding game between them um, and, mm. and, and you know one thing I will say about Man United is they the reason they're in this top four race is kind of because of their record against their rivals They've beaten yeah. Tottenham home and away now. They beat Arsenal Old Trafford. They beat West Ham home and away as well. They did lose at home to Wolves, but they they got the win then at Molyneux at the start of the season. So like that's the only three points they've dropped against these teams. If you were to make it a mini league, so you know that is kind of standing to them, and and maybe that will be kind of the decisive factor. Yeah, it, it very well could be. Um, and we know that Tottenham and Arsenal, Tottenham outside of Man City, um, and Arsenal certainly with most of the, their other top teams don't have good records, and Manchester United do. And uh, I don't know if it's the aura of the club or Old Trafford itself, but they tend to tend to get the, a bit of a performance out of them, and 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 maybe their opposition shriek a bit when they have to play them. Um, and and form goes out the window to a certain extent, but yeah, they're they're still in this until the end. They certainly have the players to do it, even with the kind of chopping and changes that's happening at the club. And if Cristiano Ronaldo can continue to score hat tricks for, for them, um, it won't really matter who they're playing against because he has that ability to do that. Whether it'll continue into the long term, I'm not so sure. Yeah, the coverage around that was quite interesting because, like, I I think we've said on this podcast recently, like he's been in very bad form basically since Ranić took over. This was easily his best game since uh, Ranić became interim manager. So you know it was the first time he probably played after having a sustained break, having not played last week. Yeah. So that was probably like a ten day to two to two week break that he'd had. He'd gone off to Portugal as well, kind of in a huff. It sounded like for for not getting into that side against Man City. You know, under the guise of a hip flexor issue, we still don't fully know what went on there but you know maybe it goes to show that a 37 year old shouldn't be playing every week and that giving him a break every now and then is probably how to get the best out of him because you know the only way that Ronaldo really works on the side is if he's scoring a hat-trick every game or if he's deciding yeah. <laughs> uh, the match uh, but with his goals every game because everything else that he does on the pitch is, is a net negative so if he's not contributing goals he's contributing nothing um, so I think this was yeah. finally the performance that kind of Ranić needed from Ronaldo it sounds like you know we expect an awful lot from Cristiano Ronaldo. If, you know he's not contributing goals, he's not doing anything. It's like what what are other players doing? Um, but yeah, like he, I, I I agree with the sentiment there. He's not doing a great deal for them off the ball. In the match itself, it does often feel like they have, if they're not in a clear goal scoring opportunity, Ronaldo doesn't care. Like there was a couple of passes sent into him, and he had a couple of chances. I think he may have had five, six chances in the game. Um, so that was all laid on a plate for him. Uh, to be quite honest with the exception of the goal he scored himself. Um, they're all laid on the platform and, and the whole team is working towards that goal. If you don't have Ronaldo in the team, maybe it's better because you don't have a single point of failure, which if Ronaldo's not performing, he is that point of failure. 
Um, but we, you know, they have them till the end of the season anyway, and they're stuck with them to, for for better or worse. So they're at the moment they're getting the best out of them. Whether that will be sustainable is another question. Yeah, and then uh, elsewhere on the pitch in the Champions League, Real Madrid completed the uh, the incredible comeback that, of course, they did against PSG. It was the only real surprise, I would say, of of the midweek action in the Champions League. Although Inter gave uh, Liverpool a good run for their money, I suppose, with the win at Anfield, but it wasn't enough. But uh, what did you make of Real Madrid in this tie? Well, yeah, the, I thought I thought the week probably. You know, I was a bit surprised at a couple of things before we get on to Real Madrid, like the the Bayern Munich are they're still awful in Bundesliga and they, they managed a, a quite an impressive win in the end but I think uh, uh, Salzburg shot themselves in the foot very early on in that game and, and indeed Liverpool I think they were playing within themselves in that game to be honest Liverpool I think they could have gone and ground up another extra couple of gears and gone on and done something in that game if they had to I think they felt that they didn't really but yeah the big one is definitely the the Real Madrid Paris Saint Germain match, and and I, I said this a few weeks ago that Real Madrid still have the capability to do it. I think they were outplayed in the first leg. I I don't think that was strategic from Ancelotti. I think they were just pinned back that much, and that was as good as they could perform. But never count out uh, a team <coughs> led by Carlo Ancelotti that's that clever with with the players uh, of the experience, will and and capability of the likes of Karim Benzema, of Luka Modric of Thibaut Courtois of, of a lot of players in that side they've been there they've done it they've won everything they have the t-shirt uh, to prove it and they really they really did ge- give uh, Paris uh, a teaching really in that last 30 minutes they couldn't get near them and they kind of fell apart and fell into their normal trap of just being crybabies or whingers or whatever you want to call it and you know there's huge fallout from that as well as a result and I, I can't say they don't deserve it. I, I, I wonder now where, where does the PSG experiment go? Will we get another season of it? Like my my little hope is that maybe Messi goes back to Barcelona or something, we get that fairy tale return. Um but yeah, I think that might be me just having pipe dreams. Yeah, I think we'll we'll go on to PSG a little later. So like the thing the thing with Real Madrid really is that like you say that they teach them a lesson, but this is a lesson that PSG were supposed to have learned by now. Yeah. You know they've had um, the six one and even the uh, the three one at home against Man United, where they got knocked down on away goals. Like this is it's incredible that this could happen. But I suppose it's incredible that Real Madrid just they keep doing this to teams. And and even Karim Menzema has this weird. He's carved out a nice niche for himself where he just upsets goalkeepers by running at them, <laughs> which is uh, uh, you know he's a big lad. He's making it work for him uh, and. Yeah. Yeah, like the twelve seconds it takes, or whatever it was, for them to go from two nit or two one on the night to three one on the night is just absolutely incredible. Like, and it shows the the absolute determination that Real Madrid have. Like the the way I look at this match is like you know, there's the meme that goes around of like, oh, this thing is gonna turn me into the Joker. Um, you know, I I look at this and I'm like, this this match is gonna turn me into Roy Keane. Where I'm, I'm just gonna go down to like they just don't show enough determination. Their mentality's all wrong. Like that's it gets to that point where I'm like, it, it, there's really no other explanation for how this works because like PSG were so, uh, like they were so clearly the better side over the first three halves of this four half match. Um, that it's just absolutely incredible that they were able to turn it around. So um, 
you know, it goes to show as well that the experience of someone like Modric and Benzema, who really stepped up in the second half, were uh, well worth their weight in gold. And then, as well, like like the likes of Camavinga, like he came on and made a real difference as well with a lot of energy. And you know, he turns out that guy's pretty good. Um, yeah, you know, there's a future in that lad. You know, and, <laughs> yeah. and the whole Real Madrid team. You know, that's. I, I thought a few years ago, like, one, this is very reminiscent of the semi-final against Bayern Munich, was it against in, in what, the year they beat Liverpool in the final, and, and it was a similar performance where they, they weren't there, Real Madrid really didn't perform, and Benzema showed up and scored a bunch of goals, and they got through, and they won that Champions League out of it, and, and yeah, very and, fortuitously with goalkeeping errors, and, and again, it, I thought it was very reminiscent of it. Yeah, like, that was the year that he just, again, ran at Sven Ulreich, and uh, yeah. God knows yeah. what happened in that guy's head. <laughs> he blacked out. Um, he really and, did. And you know, um, lo- not Laurie. So what was his name? Larry uh, Carius. Carius. Um, yeah. In, in the final against Liverpool, something similar. Like Real. Uh, you're right. Benzema has some jinx over goalkeeper's ability to withstand him in in close proximity. Um, I, I don't really get it, but the, yeah, but it, I thought this team was beyond it. To be honest, I think they, mm. they they obviously on paper they're a fantastic team. They've Eden Hazard in there, which we we haven't really even mentioned. Um, Gareth Bale's still at the club you know they, these are phenomenal talents but they're they're everyone just assumes they're past it but you know Luka Modric Kareem Benzema uh, and all of these wonderful like Vinicius Jr Cameron Vinga uh, Courtois still relatively young for a goalkeeper um, other players they have coming through as well um, they from from the academy they're still there and they're still very exciting um, and they, they can do it on their night, you know. I don't think they m- maybe have the marathon ability to do the, what they used to do and win leagues and, and compete in Europe at the same time, but they certainly do in on on single 30-minute occasions, and I think Ancelotti is almost the perfect manager to, for them. It's like an international team. Yeah, they do actually kind of remind me of an international team. I think that's a pretty that's a pretty good uh, comparison. And, and the other thing as well is that, like, you might think, off the back of this that it might galvanise Real Madrid and it might suddenly like push them towards being one of the favourites for the competition despite playing chair like this is how Real Madrid lull you in they're like oh actually Real Madrid yeah. are amazing but really like I, I, I could easily see them still absolutely just getting hammered in the quarter final obviously depending on who they draw but like if they get thrown up against Liverpool who they knocked out last year you know I think 12 months on Real, or Liverpool could just absolutely hammer them three or four nil over the two legs, and uh, you know PSG really just to, just to emphasize the fact that this is what PSG really should have been able to do in the first place. Um, yeah. You know Messi missing the penalty, they missed a few good yeah. chances, and Mbappe scoring goals that were ruled offside as well. Like they they so clearly had uh, everything in place to beat Real Madrid here and they just didn't and uh, yeah it really makes me think that someone could hammer uh, Real Madrid in the next round if um, if the draw goes a certain way yeah it's very interesting to to think about and to contemplate but like I thought Liverpool would have had them last season now it was a different Liverpool side last season they were suffering a lot of injuries and a lot of fatigue I think after the the two years and the COVID football they'd suffered through um, but they, they managed to get to a semi-final and, and, and only got beaten by was it Chelsea in the end that beat them in the yeah the semi final? You know that you know that's I I wouldn't count against them to be honest. Um, going at least another step further again, um, maybe not winning the thing, but they could definitely get there. Well, um, speaking of Chelsea, uh, is that a, uh, was that a good segue? Uh, it was a bit of a uh, bit of a week for them. Uh, Roman Abramovich was listed on the UK sanction list last week. I think on Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, which froze all his assets, including Chelsea Football Club. Uh, the club have been given a special license by the British government to continue operating. Um, but it's pretty 
unclear, I suppose, what happens next um, with with Chelsea. Like they, there's been you know several names floating around of bids coming in to buy the club for X amount of billion or whatever. But mm. uh, there's also been talk about you know they're only allowed to spend a certain amount to travel to away games, not allowed to sell tickets. The club mm. shop was uh, closed. Um, yeah. You know, I saw, I think it was Simon Johnson at the Athletic was telling a story. He was covering a youth game at Sanford Bridge and he went up at halftime just through instinct to go uh, uh, get food off the canteen and he went to pay. And the lady or whatever that was there just went, oh no, it's all free. Um, <laughs> so like that is that has been the state of the club over the last week. Uh, they, they won on the pitch against uh, Newcastle who were a pretty appropriate opponent for them <laughs> uh, on Sunday, which Eddie Howe went under a lot of scrutiny as well given the kind of the fact that it's kind of in the news at the moment that the ownership of, of football clubs is uh, under a bit more scrutiny these days than it normally feels. So, um, you know, what are your thoughts on how, where Chelsea and football go next? It's, it's There's a lot of big questions, <laughs> Declan, being answered and being asked in the last week. Um, I think it's important to note just the facts around Chelsea. Roman Abramovich has been sanctioned for his closeness to the Putin regime and the invasion in the Ukraine and, and to kind of put... Uh, what the British government deemed as effectively uh, assets that were funding a war effort, an illegal war effort, beyond the use of their owners, um, which is what Abramovich was deemed by the UK government. Um, so that's that's a very interesting fact to, to, to start with. Um, the fact as well that you mentioned that they can't uh, really do anything now. They're, they've been granted a special licence to continue playing football. Um, which is across the club, so the men, the women, the youth teams, as you said, can all continue to play football, but their sponsors are disavowing them. Uh, they're looking to pull out of, of sponsors uh, like Three and uh, their main shirt sponsor and, and other commercial partners are, are, are really backing out of things um, almost immediately. It's a kind of a, a, a metaphoric washing of the hands of Chelsea. Um, I don't know to be honest where football goes from here i have ideas I've, I've talked to you about them i think in the short term i don't know why chelsea haven't already been sent into administration they are insolvent as far as i can tell they have no access to bank facilities and uh, no hope of getting any more bank facilities i don't think any bank will touch them uh, which means that they are living off of their cash reserves and i can't imagine they're too deep uh, given that Stamford bridge isn't a massive stadium uh, given that their expenses are enormously high um, that, that that can't go on for very long and they will eventually have to go into administration unless the government in the UK grants them another licence to change their current predicament or indeed sell the club which I don't necessarily see happening that quickly um, I think it's a it's the it was the right thing to do to sanction them I, I was in, like almost not annoyed is, isn't the right word but I think it probably should have happened sooner which would have kicked this whole process off a couple of weeks ago and maybe we'd have a buyer for the club already and their future would be a bit more assured and the the, the futures of about a thousand employees it's not just the rich premier league footballers that are there it's a thousand other people work for the club in in various different positions i think their futures are all in question i think people have already been let go which is a sad state of affairs but i think it has to happen as well i don't think it's right that football has got itself into this position where <laughs> like a war can be waged and that can put a football club at risk I think that can shows you how flawed uh, the whole decision was to allow someone like Roman Abramovich to own a club in the first place a community asset as it's been called uh, it should never have happened um, and yeah whether Chelsea like I, I have my own thoughts and we'll probably come around to them but whether Chelsea can operate as a Champions League level team this season uh, is unknown. I don't think they'll be able to next season, no matter what. 
Um, I think there are two there are two places up for grabs in the cho- in the top four this season. I don't think they'll be granted a license to compete next year uh, in European football. Um, presuming a sale doesn't happen in the next forty eight hours, I, I don't think that that is going to be possible for them. And I think there is a, a redrawing of the lines and a redrawing of the boundaries in in English football. Um, I think this is a tectonic shift in funding. Um, I thought, as I said to you before we came on air, I thought um, when Newcastle were purchased, there's arguably three or four clubs that are untouchable or near untouchable in in the top echelons of of English football. They were Manchester United through their own wealth and long term viability. Um, there was Manchester City through their you know their funder in the Abu Dhabi. Um, there was Chelsea through Roman Abramovich funding, uh, and then the other place was basically a, a toss up between the other historically big clubs so Liverpool Tottenham Arsenal uh, and Newcastle were going to usurp one of those teams and now I think Chelsea have dropped out of that and they're back down to the the real world with Arsenal and Tottenham and Liverpool and, and clubs that are trying to for the better or worse play within their means um, and I think that's a, a, a mile apart from where Chelsea have played in the last 15 years a different league a different ball game yeah like I think we, we mentioned this last week that like there is a generation of fans out there who only know Roman Aranovic is the owner of Chelsea mm-hmm. so this is a, a huge moment for the club's history but it should be said that you know the club survived for about 100 years before Roman Abramovich and should be able to just survive about. again <laughs> just about yes but it should, it should be able to survive again now that he's gone like this is Chelsea football club not Roman yeah, Abramovich yeah, yeah. football club so yeah um, and, and the other thing it is, is a be, community asset yeah, and the other thing that should be said is like that Chelsea don't have the divine right to compete for for championships and for no. Champions League places. You know, if, um, like it sounds harsh, but the reality is like that, that a new owner could run them into the ground and they, you know, go back to being mid-table club or you know anything could happen. Like a new owner could come in and and spend loads of money and the good times keep rolling, but we just don't know. Um, and 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 you're completely right that the that uncertainty over the clubs, you know future shouldn't um come into question uh because a war has been waged and that that says a lot about all the things that we've been complaining about over the years about the fact that they need stricter rules as to who can actually own and run these clubs that's why man city have been brought up that's why newcastle have been brought up like these are clubs that are owned by regimes that could do the same thing that do the same thing you know saudi arabia have invaded yemen um you know they've bombed yemen in the past they will probably do it again Mm -hmm. in the future um, you know they they should not be owning a football club. You know the sanctions in England. That, in, in England, <laughs> they can but, own like you can own football clubs wherever you want, but it's it's more the well. I, I think how can a foreign power be allowed to use a a community asset as we keep describing these football clubs as a pawn? Yeah, like I, I think it's the same. Game. It's the same in PSG. Like a, you know, it's mm. it's pretty sickening that the Qatar regime owns Paris Saint Germain, um, but obviously. You know, we're a little less tied to to French football and uh, and whatnot, yeah. and, and and it remains to be seen what the future of that club will be as well, which we'll talk yeah. about later. Um, but you know, in terms of what we're talking about in the Premier League, like Newcastle, obviously, Mike Ashley was, was not a fan favorite there, but you know, he's just a businessman. He was just running the club as a business. You know, he wasn't. You know, we can talk about how he treats his workers at Direct Sport or whatever, and and the various means there, but. You know, there has to be a line drawn between, uh, you know, 
not running a, a business that treats your workers well and, you know, uh, committing war crimes. I do think there is a slight difference there in acceptability. Um, and I do think that Mike Ashley was a much more preferable owner to have in the Premier League than the leaders of Saudi Arabia, than the leaders of the United Arab Emirates. Um, and, you know, in, in reality, I don't think that what happens with Roma Abramovich will impact Newcastle or Man City, not at the very least in the short term. But the but you know had reali- not realistically but I- idealistically it should um, and it should be a wake up call that these clubs uh, you know are in a very similar position to Chelsea and they should be sanctioned as well and they should have never been allowed in the first place like Abramovich never should have been and um, you know it, it is worrying that we don't know who could take over Chelsea because they're open to um, you know more Gulf nations coming in and deciding they want to get their their hands involved yeah. in this as well so I think it is very important that the Premier League takes the right steps in figuring out a, a, a proper owner a fit and proper owner for Chelsea as opposed to some Saudi Arabian prince has been uh, as has been rumored today like I, I think it's important to put it out here. I don't understand how we can have rules for competition and fairness competition that prevent, um, say the the Potsy is it the Potsy family that own Watford Udinese and Pozzo, yeah. the Remy York Potsy family. Like they technically can't, their teams can't compete with each other in the same competition. So if they ever were to all qualify for Europe, they they would have to disavow their club's uh, assets. Um, I think something similar with, with Vitesse Arnhem, Arhem, or whatever you say in Chelsea. Um, they have a similar relationship there where they couldn't actually be playing each other uh, in a competitive co- UEFA competition otherwise um, it wouldn't be a, a legal game um, and so I don't understand how another Saudi um, owner could come in and buy Chelsea while also the Saudi royal family effectively ha- ex- having control whether they own it on paper or not it's it's not about that it's about the control they can exercise over the club and I, I see no way how Newcastle and Chelsea could both be owned by Saudi princes or trusts controlled by Saudi princes when it's all part of one big family. Um, and, and so, we, yeah. Like that goes to speak about how dirty the money is in football. Like it's never been the cleanest, <laughs> but uh, no. right now they're effectively being used to launder money for uh, oil nation states to, uh, you know, make their money more acceptable so they can actually use it, uh, you know, they're divesting their assets and stuff like that, like that. You know, football shouldn't be used for that thing. They're not laundromats. Um, uh, yeah, and it's it's not even, lo- like, I, it's not even as criminal as, as laundering sounds. It's, you know, and we can talk about sports washing and stuff like that, but it's also an, um, an exercise in exercising, uh, well, an exercise in extending soft power yeah. over nation. You know, it's having Chelsea and having the risk like why wasn't Chelsea sanctioned two weeks ago was it because of the political out, out, you know the political impact of having 30,000 angry Chelsea fans potentially at your your local TD's or TD local MP's <laughs> door um, in, in, in England is that in London is that is that why it took two weeks to sanction Roman Abramovich or was there some other reason we won't know for years to come why it took this long for it to happen and, and why other things haven't happened afterwards as well and subsequently to that um, yeah, I think I think there's an opportunity here for the Premier League to establish f- better rules on, f- on fit and proper ownership. I think they've been mooted at in in recent times um, with the you know the what was the name of the Crouch? Is it the Crouch report that came out? Yeah. Uh, on on the future of English football and and the establishment of uh, 
of different bodies within the game such as an independent regulator for the Premier League and the Football League and things like that which has been uh, basically <laughs> ignored or rejected by by many of the clubs involved including the whole Premier League as far as I understand um, but there, there there has to be some kind of government not interference but a government in, in, in incentives to kind of get some of these reforms through so that a situation like this doesn't present itself again in the future I think we've like we have I'm not sure if there's anything you can do about the clubs that have already been purchased maybe there is I don't necessarily see the appetite being there in in the British government on either side of the of the house for for going and and backwards um changing the ownership rules so that Man City can't be owned from abroad or Newcastle can't be owned from abroad or Arsenal Man United or Liverpool or whoever else you want to to speak about can't be owned from abroad but I think going forward they can at least put in a bit more stringent controls so that the UK government does not have to interfere in football again um, and, and cause this sort of thing I also think the Premier League is going to act I said this to you on Friday and I still believe that you know should Chelsea become insolvent unable to pay their, their bills no cash coming in no access to additional bank facilities and no sale um, looking likely to happen um, I presume they will get docked nine points for going into administration or I believe they will go into administration and then be docked nine points um, and indeed probably removed from European competition if they're not already at that point and likely um, removed from next season's competition as a punishment as well. Um, but I think the Premier League will bound together and probably create some kind of fund to enable clubs in dire financial need uh, to access uh, facilities, banking facilities, cash effectively. And I think they'll all put in a, a tune of a few million each, probably by 20 clubs would probably be enough to cover Chelsea to the end of the season. Uh, presuming these players agree to some kind of deferment of their wages and and indeed staff probably agree to it as well i I think that is what will happen um whether it happens this week as i thought it would or over the weekend as i thought it would or it happens in a couple of weeks when chelsea finally do run out of money is yet to be seen but i can't see how the premier league can do that cannot do that otherwise chelsea will be relegated because i don't see how they can sustainably why would the players keep playing for the club why would everyone keep going um, if they can't sell tickets, if they can't pay the players, if they can't afford to attend away games, they stop fulfilling fixtures. The, the season isn't that long left. You know they can't. They don't have enough time to rearrange everything. So unless something like that happens, I can't see Chelsea sustaining their position in third or indeed their position in the Premier League. Yeah, like the 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 there's so many still unknowns. Like we just literally don't know how much money that that Chelsea even have. Like for all we know, they could have an absolute ton of money in the bank, or they could have absolutely nothing. Well, they can't like, access their bank. It's only what the, they have on hand. The, the, yeah, that's what I mean. Actually, rather, yeah, the, yeah. the money that they just have lying around. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, we would imagine it's not that much, and that you know the the license that they've been extended by the government lasts until May thirty first, and I suppose they the government really has until then to figure out what to do with the club. Um, you know, I suppose. If you're a Chelsea fan listening to this, the positive is that seemingly there are a number of people who want to own the club. Um, you know, we the the negative. Are any I suppose, of them good characters? Who yeah, knows? that that's the negative is we we don't know what their ulterior motives are. Like I saw, I think Miguel Delaney made the point that like you know there are a couple of Tony Tory donors who are interested in owning the club, which you know might just be a, a case where they want to own the club to say that they own it and then not actually do anything to help it. Um, you know, it was kind of a fashion accessory, uh, a la um, Cronke, who owns Arsenal and hasn't done a whole lot with that club over the years. Um, and Arsenal fans will be the first to tell you he's not been a good owner. Um, so, like, that, that is possibly some of the, a future uh, 
that Chelsea could 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 envision in coming soon. So um, yeah, like there's still just so many unknowns. Like I I I don't quite see it playing out that way. Like I do think that they. I, I, I mean, the club have lobbied the UK government to be able to access some of their money. Um, you know, maybe they will be given some of those allowances. They've also asked to be able to continue selling tickets. You know, you know, maybe they will be granted that 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 uh, allowance as well. And I do think that if if they start loosening the rope that much, then Chelsea will probably just be allowed to carry on as as normal uh, for the rest of the season. They won't be docked any points, and they'll probably be sold in time to be able to continue playing next season quite normally. Um, so I think yeah. uh, I think a lot of it does depend on, on basically what the the Tory UK government decides. Um, yeah, which like, is maybe uh, not we, the b- we, best position. Yeah, we've painted two. Like I think these are these are uh, thoughts that can exist, you know, mutually. Like these are two. We painted two pictures that like Chelsea could be docked points, fall out of Europe, not be able to compete in in the Champions League next season. Given Arsenal, Manchester United, whoever else gets up there. Uh, the chance to both get into the Champions League, or they could can be continued as normal. This, but this, you know, really solidifies the team spirit. It bows on they and they solidify third place in the league. They don't get duct- deducted any points. They find money from somewhere. They find a buyer, and they go into next season as if nothing really changed. I, I, at this point, we have no idea what like it is in the lap of the gods. It is in the lap of of the, the, the Tory government in the UK to decide which one of those scenarios happens. I love football. Thank you. They were declared the winners of the transfer window, but PSG have failed to make it to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Despite signing Donnarumma, Ramos, Hakimi, Wijnaldum and obviously Messi, the team has gone backwards compared to the previous two seasons. It now also looks apparent that Kylian Mbappe will leave in the summer. Neymar is now 30 and Messi has clearly struggled since moving to Paris. So what next for PSG? Oh, it's a big, big question. We've just finished talking about Chelsea and the the uncertainties around their future. I think they're much more in the present focus, but I think PSG could be there within the year, um, just as bad, if not worse. Like, they're you know we're talking about sports washing in 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 the game and and its use and really what use does Paris Saint Germain have after this Qatar World Cup is over, which will be this Christmas. Like, what what happens then? Do, do they drop their their interest in in PSG, did they drop their interest in French football and propping up that league with their TV rights? Does it spell the end of, of not the complete end of domestic French league football, but really the demise of it? Was this the last highlight of, of, of a dying league? Um, will they drop out of the top five leagues? Like It, it is all very like, possible, I think, after after this year is over. Because like, the experiment hasn't worked. You know, It's worked in the fact that they've got a Jordan sponsorship and they've managed to sign all of these big players and they've really made the Galacticos project that, that uh, Perez started, Florentino Perez started 20 years ago in, in Madrid a reality without, of course, the, the Pavons, with only the Zidans. Um, and it doesn't work. I think they've proven it doesn't work as a model. Uh, you've had probably pretty good managers coming in and out of that club now for the best part of a decade. We've had Ancelotti, Blanc, um, Tuchel, uh, Pochettino now, um, all of them have failed to, to reach the goal that has been set for them at the beginning of the season and we can go into the psychological reasons for that happening but I think they've given, been given every resource in the world and that's just not how football is won um, and I don't know if there's going to be another opportunity to test the experiment out again, I don't think there will be 
and as I said in the earlier part in the uh, of the show, like maybe this is an opportunity for a lot of uh, a lot of very good players we picked up for not very much money. Yeah, like uh, to kind of parallel our discussion with Chelsea, uh, you've taken I think the worst case scenario for PSG yes, and Chelsea, and I think I can take the best case scenario again uh, for PSG. Take the high ground. In 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 that I don't think that the Qatar World Cup is the signal of the end for for you know their interest in PSG as a project. I certainly don't think it's the end of their interest in football. You know we've seen Nasser Al Khalifi who uh, you know there were talks that he attacked the referees' room in the aftermath of the match in the Bernabeu and, and broke the some of the uh, broke some yeah. equipment. And uh, you know this is a dude who's quite clearly passionate about PSG winning the Champions League for better or for yeah. worse, um, largely for worse. Um, and like this is a guy who's uh, you know putting a lot of effort into gaining uh, power within football. Like we talked in the last segment about you know gain, you know they buy these clubs to gain soft power. Like they you know Nasser Al Khalifi is the head of the ECA in the fallout of the of the Super League, which was kind of a master stroke on his part to take advantage of the fallout of that. So um, you know that's a pretty powerful position in, in football that he's only just taken over in the last twelve months. Is he just going to give that up because Qatar? host of the world cup like um i think as well that uh qatar have a 2030 goal as well for for certain targets that they want to meet in terms of um reputation and, and tourism and, and and all the things that they are using this project to do i think it's called vision 2030 or something like that i can't remember but you know that shows that they have a long-term goal in mind and i think football will still play a large part of that i, I think that the qatar world cup is really just the beginning um, instead of the end uh, for for their uh, future in sport, okay. um, you know we've already seen very optimistic. <laughs> well, like the other thing as well is like you know outside of uh, football, they've started hosting a Qatar Grand Prix in F one as well, which you know <laughs> let's not get into their human rights record uh, in no. Formula One. Let's just say it's not great, but that that was a long term deal, which I believe runs for another five or six years. It won't they won't host one this year. But from next year onwards, they will. They, I think they're even creating a track to to do so, mm. or there's talks of creating a, a a brand new track just to hold Formula One races in. So, you know, I do think they still have a commitment to sport to this project that they're doing, which you know, obviously, I do think is quite nefarious. Um, much like with the United Arab Emirates at at um at Man City and Saudi Arabia, Newcastle, like I don't like that this is what's happening and it's just being kind of allowed happen because mm. it's bringing money in. Um, but I, you know, I don't necessarily think that this is the end for. I think I think it is an ending for PSG, but I don't think it's the end um, for Qatar uh, it, and its time at PSG. Like I do think, you know, there's talk of Leonardo leaving. He's the sporting director. Pochettino will almost certainly leave in the summer as well, or at the end of the season, or you know, maybe even sooner. Yeah. Um, Mbappe, you know, he's gone to Real Madrid. It seems like you know. Although I did see there was a headline of like Real Madrid set to announce Kylian Mbappe signature if they lose to PSG. It was like, well, they won, so does that mean he's not going now? Um, no, he is. He is. But he is, of course. It was just a silly headline. Um, but you know that there's that's a that's a lot to lose in one summer, and it's a real it's it's a yeah. signifier that they they need to reset. Um, you know, Messi hasn't quite worked. You know, obviously it's been great to be able to say that Messi played for the club, but you know he doesn't look very yeah. happy. Um, you know he's getting booed by the PSG fans when they were playing as Bordeaux at the weekend. So I can't imagine he's too pleased with that. I don't know if he's ever been booed in his life. Uh, by home supporters, so um, probably not. You know, Neymar as well got the brunt of that too. Um, well, yeah, so. they have. They have. 
ever since they signed Neymar, and you can argue that it existed under Ibra- when Ibrahimovic was there as well, because they they've signed too many players to play in the same position because Cavani was there and everything as well. You can argue that they haven't approached um, the recruitment side and the team playing and the fact that football is a team sport, not an individual sport, very well at all. That they've been signing names, not players. That they've been signing. Uh, what they could sell or what they could make commercially or what image they could project and, and you can bring in the Jordan deal into this situation as well uh, rather than actually try to build a winning team and a dominant side and someone who could you know a team that could even rightly take over world football they could have done it you know but they they just simply haven't I, I think they've they've come across they've come at this at a different way to the way Man City did and not that Man City have done everything right by any stretch of the imagination, and we can we won't go into the nefarious things around Man City, but you can like there's two different approaches to to, to this kind of sports watching of football. There's what Man City did, and there's what Paris Saint Germain did, and he can I don't think there's any doubt you can argue that Man City have been way more successful than Paris Saint Germain, and probably having spent a lot less money as well. Um, yeah, and the funny thing is neither have won a Champions League for no. for all their efforts. Yeah, I know it's it is as if that is like uh you know off limits for these type of clubs. It's like I don't kar- know. karmic retribution by the football yeah. gods. The only thing that like the, the the only thing that says anything about that is the fact that Chelsea have won tw- two of these tournaments. So maybe yeah, um, maybe it's just a matter of time before these these teams do do win this tournament. I just I I, I think that the the soundings around PSG it just comes like you're right. Po- Pochettino might leave. Leonardo is likely to leave. The president even is likely to leave. I've heard rumours of him being removed from his position as well. Um, which, you know, and, and very little talk about who's going to replace Mbappe in the summer. Like, everyone's been talking about Mbappe's leaving, Mbappe's leaving. No one's talking about who's going to come in and replace Mbappe. Like, the early on, maybe, but not in the last few months. And, like, Holland has obviously talked about being leaving uh, Borussia Dortmund as well. And he's, like, it seems most likely he'll either go to England or Real Madrid at this point. Now Paris Saint-Germain as a replacement. He won't go near them due to... Well, there's probably a lot of reasons why why Haaland won't go to PSG, but one of them could be that like PSG maybe aren't interested in signing these big name players anymore. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they are just re going to reposition themselves and be more of an actual football club and actually have a plan <laughs> and follow through with that plan and not just sign the biggest names at at, at the expense of actually squad harmony and tactical nous and everything else they've sacrificed in signing, you know, Mbappe, Neymar, Messi you know everyone you've listed in that Sergio Ramos like these aren't players who are necessarily tactically astute or very uh conforming to a style of football that that is compatible with one each other like a lot of the time these players occupy the same roles on the pitch um which makes you think it's a it's a whole silly adventure that we we've even been had to witness in the last year or so because like it shouldn't work the way that they're playing like it's amazing they got as far as they did um, it was just through sheer willpower almost that they did or the quality of the players on the field because tactically it didn't work out uh, so maybe I am being too pessimistic and thinking that the Qataris are going to pull out of European football and or maybe reduce their presence and, and, and re-alter things and maybe focus on other sports on golf, on Formula 1 as you've said but I think it's within the realm of possibility that is exactly what happens and not maybe not immediately at the summer maybe, maybe you see a few departures and them continue it on but maybe from next year on it, Paris Saint-Germain starts becoming a more normal team again 
Yeah, like I do think that the one thing we can definitely conclude from our discussions on Chelsea and PSG is that basically because we've had such a range <laughs> in in mm. uh, in reaction and kind of prediction for what is to come is that like there is just a ton of uncertainty and uh, I think yeah. that there is a lot of potential for upheaval at, at PSG regardless of, of what the Qatari stance is just because mm. it's clear that a lot of things are kind of coming to a head in this summer and then obviously in the winter with the World Cup happening. Um, you know, it's very conspicuous timing. So, um, yeah, th- there's a lot of uncertainty around the future of that club as well, um, mm. which you're right. Like, it not only impacts French football, but it impacts European football because, you know, you look at, um, say, Mohamed Salah. Uh, last week it came out that you know, talks broke down between him and Liverpool over a new contract. And you look at the, the landscape and you just wonder, well, like, Liverpool really have the bargaining position here because where's Salah supposed to go? Yeah, and maybe that came that leak came out of Liverpool's side of things and it wasn't the players and maybe the power is shifting back to being in the club's hands. You know, the last few years we've had very limited transfers um of big players because of, you know, COVID and, and, and things associated with it that there was a lot of demand and not much supply and maybe now that demand is kind of actually if we do this the right way we can control like we as the clubs can control demand going forward if we just be clever about this and work together and almost collude on something that they can ensure that their players don't go where they when they don't want them to go Now, finally, to close the show, let's look ahead to uh, another week of Champions League action. We've got four sides already in the quarterfinal draw, so uh, who will be joining uh, them in the in the other half of the draw? Well, like the obvious one, I think. Well, there was the most obvious one in 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 Lille versus Chelsea before the events of the past week. Um, I'm presuming Chelsea have got a way to get to Lille uh, that they're allowed. Like, I wonder are they going to accept charitable donations? Is a GoFundMe allowed? Um, to get them there, like I know Thomas Tuchel was making uh, well, I, I uh, jokes about a seven seater and driving the players himself. Uh, <laughs> you know? Well, the club, as far as we're concerned, isn't allowed except any money at all, so probably not. Yeah, so they have twenty grand uh, to play in away game, which apparently, you know, to, for most people would be enough to to move a a football team to France uh, for a night to play a football match. But apparently, Chelsea routinely spend over fifty grand on such an occasion. Well, the, um, the the thing when it comes to this particular match is that a lot of it could have been prepaid anyway because it all would have been planned out up to now. So yeah. I do think that they will get through this match and then it becomes a little more of a question mark when the quarterfinal draw comes through because, well, if this match does play as normal, we can assume Chelsea will go through. Yeah, like, they, there is no away goals, but I, I, you know, Lille didn't get them anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, so, and yeah, I think Chelsea will be fairly comfortable presuming that they'll continue the form they've had in the last couple of games when they've really kind of shown up and, and done what's needed to be done without, you know, without really being that flashy they've 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 done they've given a performance worthy of winning their last two games against Norwich and Newcastle now Lille are a bit above that level um and maybe they'll see an opportunity here to strike at them while they're maybe weak psychologically and maybe there is a few question marks going around uh the Chelsea dressing room about when we're going to be able to cancel our contracts or leave or whatever else um that they can pick on but yeah on on the surface of it Chelsea should easily go through this um in a similar way I'm expecting Ajax to to not trounce Benfica because I think they struggled in a surprising enough way in that first leg in Portugal um but you know they're back at home um they kind of had the time to prepare they know how to play against Benfica now 
and I expect Ajax to kind of probably do enough to, to win that game, maybe 2-1-3, 3-2 type of way. They'll, they'll get one more goal to then, then Benfica can manage against them um, in a counter-attacking way. Um, so I think Ajax and Chelsea are, are two relative certainties for the, the quarterfinals. I think the other two matches are where the, the interest comes in. Yeah, like, uh, first of all, on Tuesday night, we've got Man United against Atletico, and, uh, you know, we talked about Man United getting the win over Tottenham there uh, at the weekend, mm. and interestingly now, they, they, I think going into this game, they won't be missing anyone unless, you know, something happens between now and, and tomorrow evening, but they've got everyone fit and available from what I can tell, so um, that does give Reinick a bit of freedom to the kind of team he wants to put out, because, like, lately it's been a case of... Shaw's been out, McTominay's been out, Cavani's been out, you know, Bruno missed the game against, uh, against Tottenham on Saturday. So it has been a bit difficult lately to try and, to kind of just put together the best possible team that will, he can. So Will Bruno um, be back for this match or at he, least he'll be out with COVID? Uh, Bruno Fernandez trained with the side today as did Luke okay. Shaw and, and Scott McTominay. So they should have everyone available yeah. for this again unless something happens in the next 24 hours, which I suppose it could, um, you know, yeah. so... That, that, that I think, the, is, is yeah. a positive for, for United going into this. I think Atletico have enough to beat this Manchester United side. I think they have more going about them going forward in an attack in a way that, say, Spurs didn't and didn't take advantage of and still managed to get two goals against this Man United side. I think if they if Atletico score two goals, they're going through um, in this game. It's not going to be anything other than that. Uh, that said, you know, we United have the capability to tranche teams trounce teams um they didn't look like they were able to do that in the first leg against atletico and whether whether they'll we'll see a different side this time around i don't know um ronaldo does have a decent record i think against atletico in his real madrid career so maybe he <laughs> pretty could, good yeah yeah and did in the when he was at juventus as well didn't he score did he score he, a hat trick he, against he scored a hat trick to knock uh, atletico out of yeah. the champions league with juventus and with real madrid so yeah so like that's the kind of yeah, the kind of uh, well, you know, past performance is no <laughs> is no yeah. guide to future, but you know they they have that edge, I suppose, on them. So it's a tough one. I probably would fancy United at this point because Atletico have been so inconsistent this season, uh, because they couldn't put United to bed in the first leg, which they really did have the opportunity to do on a number of occasions and conceded that sucker punch of a goal later on. Um, and I think that might just give United enough confidence to go through. Yeah, like we've seen Atletico play quite poorly in La Liga this season, and I suppose even mm. to an extent last year when they won the title. But um, yeah, uh, lately as well, like I, I do think that first leg performance was probably the best they played in quite a long time, probably since before the pandemic when they beat Liverpool at home at the Wanda. So um, yeah. you know, it, it, it is interesting. Like obviously they won the second leg at Anfield, but they were much worse in that game, and they kind of rolled their luck a little in that game. Like I think Liverpool hit the post a couple of times and. Missed a couple yeah. of really good chances. Liverpool should have gone through that night, and it was obviously a weird night anyway with the pandemic looming. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, last year they played against Chelsea. They, did, they didn't get to play at the Wanda, um, but they did get to play at Sanford Bridge, I believe, and they were awful in that game. They were. So, uh, you know, I, the fact that there's now becoming a bit of a pattern where they play quite well at home and then play dreadfully away, you know, that does again lean towards me going and favouring United in this game. Yeah. Uh, mm. You know, I do wonder as well, like, if it plays out similarly where Man United score early, uh, I just don't see Atletico getting them back into the game, even if United do sit back, just because I do think they've they've really lacked that edge about them lately. So, yeah. um, you know, first first goal will matter quite a lot in this game. Whereas, yeah. I think um, that'll decide it. I don't, because I, if maybe. Atletico get it, they're not going to concede a goal. 
Um, it'll, or they'll be very hard pushed to concede a goal. Well, if Man United get it, I think Atletico could crumble. Yeah, like we would have said that, I suppose, of the Wanda and the Man United did get an equaliser. So, you know, yeah. it's it's hard to tell even now. But mm. It's a sucker punch of a goal, though. It was very, yeah. like, unexpected. And, and, and it was well you know, taken. It was, absolutely. Langham was very good. But, it, you know, that happening twice is a lightning strike. Yeah, um, then the other game is Juventus against Villarreal, which will take place in, in Italy, in, Turi- in Turin, I was going to call it Torino. Um, in well, Turin. That's what it is called. Uh, well, in, in, in Italian it is. But the, in the Italian, club, yes. The club is called Torino as well, of course. They got to draw an Inter yes. at the weekend, you know, uh, just shout out to them. So, um, mm-hmm. this, this, game, worked, but yeah. this game is going to be just awful, <laughs> is my fear. Uh, yeah. The first, the first leg, leg was, was pretty terrible. Oh, so bad. Juventus... <laughs> Like I believe was a Rabio, one of the worst challenges I've seen in a long time. Yeah, and it was completely fluffed by VAR and the official on the night, uh, with only a yellow card going to Rabio, and it was awful. And like almost by coincidence, more than anything else, Juventus suffered two long-term injuries during the match of McKinney, who in a, in a kind of innocuous challenge, I think broke his foot, and I think they lost another player as well earlier on in the match. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, but like it was almost like karma, karmic retribution on the team. Like VRL were the better side uh, in that game and probably should have taken the victory if they had a centre forward who could score goals for them. Um, that wasn't getting kicked up and down the field. They probably would have done it. Uh, and if Juventus weren't so expert, like experienced in that defensive unit, probably VRL would have got at them as well. I I honestly don't see. If Villarreal really do turn up and play that awful football that we know an Unai Emery side can play, I don't see how Juventus can get out of this. Yeah, like this is a funny one in that I think the whoever scores first probably gets eliminated. <laughs> um, you know, but just because both managers have just this uh, yeah. this tendency, this habit of they get that early goal and this literally happened in the first leg they get this early goal and then they just sit back and they concede way too much control of the game and they just can't get back into it once they concede yeah. um, like we saw that Dusan Vlajevic shout out to him he scored an absolutely amazing strike 30 seconds into the first leg but after that Juventus offered next to nothing they allow Villarreal back into the game eventually the pressure told um, and Villarreal got the equaliser and I do think that kind of gives them the momentum going into this game and it should give them the belief that they can get through um, and of course, you know, Emery does have great experience of getting through these knockout ties in, yeah. in Europe. So, um, Miss Europa League, like, yeah. So, I, I think this game will be pretty close, and I kind of do favor Villarreal to get through. I kind of did before the draw was made anyway. Um, and I do think that the the only thing that maybe doubts it is the fact that Vlajevic is in extremely good form at the moment. Yeah, that guy can score anything you 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 throw at him, but they need to be able to throw something at him and they created nothing for him like and he was dropping so deep in that first leg to try and create stuff that it, you know it's it's not a it's not a functioning side at the moment i think they have the the groundwork made for for a team that could be very good back in Serie A next season but really they they're not there yet and and they can't just buy their way out of it um even no matter how good Vajevic is or however you pronounce his name that i can't pronounce like i i think it could be another dour year for italian football in europe yeah, and then um, in the uh, or elsewhere rather in the FA Cup, uh, there's some interesting ties here. Nottingham Forest hosts Liverpool, which is a good uh, throwback. Uh, you know, obviously they have a history that that uh, against, a history of a rivalry against each other. Uh, you know, back in the '80s, which uh, mm. will be fun to relive. And 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 Chelsea are away to Middlesbrough, who have knocked out Man United and Tottenham up to now. So uh, maybe they can they can strike again. Yeah, like. <laughs> 
the, going into it, like the, the you can't not favor Liverpool in the in the in the Forest game. They are um, in supreme form. They did lose Sinter last week, but they really, you know, they you could tell that they didn't really care. They could afford to lose that game because they had the two goal cushion going into. But every other performance in recent times has been phenomenal. They've done what they needed to do. It's been so professional uh, in their execution of game plans, in their scoring of goals, and in their defensive solidity. That I don't even think that an informed Knotts Forest team that that is pushing for playoff um, positions could could do anything about it um that said the romance in the cup and all maybe maybe forest can actually do something and get get out of it liverpool will have played a lot of football in the last few weeks i think that will be there they played every, every midweek i think going back a fair few weeks at this stage um so they they might have a, a bit of mileage on the legs that could get, get, could see them but then again they'll probably play out a lot of the kids in this game and and they have shown that they're good enough i think at, at this level as well yeah, you know, like the interesting thing here is the fact that you know you're right about Liverpool, and but the other thing is is well is that they haven't actually gotten to an FA Cup quarter final under Jurgen Klopp. Um, so mm. you know there's that aspect to it as well. And Nottingham Forest themselves haven't played in the quarterfinals since the UEFA Cup game against Bayern Munich in the late nineties, or I think it was ninety six. Well, the, the early ni- the early nineties. Yeah, I think it was after a League Cup. I want to say it was ninety six. I believe was the year. So um, what were they doing in the? What did they win to get? into that I'm not sure actually how they yeah, got there I need, to ch- I need to check that up because that's after that's post cloth that would be your man you know San Collymore was probably there at that stage uh, I, I do know that that uh, Bayern Munich game is the game where you know the football is coming home song mm. of course we all know and have our opinions on it but um, we, love, there's, we love it you, you know the line from Alan Hansen in it about um, our game or whatever it was he says he said it at this match uh, the football <laughs> cliches podcast um, haunted that down and someone found the clip of him saying it so uh, that's a nice little uh, Fair play. fun fact Fair play. there um, um, and yeah for as for the other games like Everton can't hit a barn door with a banjo at the moment it's just a great opportunity for Crystal Palace to get back to Wembley um, and to kind of bring back exercise. Alan Pardew. Yeah, ex- <laughs> well, I was going to say exercise the demons of Alan Pardew and get to a semi-final <laughs> without him being involved uh, in some way. And, and Vieira, I think his season has earned it, to be quite honest. But then, you know, Frank Lampard is history with the cup as well and, and maybe he can get a, a one-shot kind of performance out of them. And Palace would have just played City as well this week. It, it, it'll be a tough game either way I think Palace I fancy in that game Southampton Man City I think has one answer on it and I, I, I'm some, I have some clairvoyance that it's going to be a Man City Liverpool semi-final for some reason and then of course the last match the, the it brings back historic 1997 vibes of Middlesbrough versus Chelsea yeah um, Roberto Di Matteo and that, and mm. that unbelievably quick goal and, and that FA Cup final Um Burrow, they're 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 doing well under Chris Wilder. They've got a lot of those loan signings kind of performing well. They're they're punching above where they were earlier in the season in in terms of the where they are in the championship. Uh, Chelsea might be a bit run down because of the Lille and 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 you know the getting up to Middlesbrough is going to be a a, a tough ask for them as well <laughs> on that twenty grand budget. So maybe they will be a few tired legs and uh, a, you know a bit sleepy over 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 overnight travel or something like that on a train. I don't know how they'll do it. Um, but yeah, I, I still think Chelsea are probably the favourites in that one. So for some reason, I'm predicting Chelsea Palace and Liverpool Man City as the two semis. 
Yeah, and uh, I think that would be interesting enough. I do think there's room for upsets there, but you're probably oh, right yeah, that yeah. Th- th- those are uh, the favourites, certainly. And that would be a fun semi-final draw. Um, but then elsewhere, there's, a, as I said, a collection of random Premier League games coming up. Uh, pretty big implications in the top four race with Tottenham playing West Ham, as we mentioned earlier. But Arsenal are playing as Liverpool midweek, and then they play Aston Villa at the weekend. So, uh, you know, they're catching up some of their games in hand there. Um, you know that Liverpool game yeah, is like, going to be uh, tough, but uh, they should be able to get past Villa. Yeah, well, it depends because they're playing at half twelve. They're playing Wednesday, the the obviously late at nighttime fixture, eight o'clock at, at the Emirates. But then they have to travel up to Birmingham for Villa at lunchtime on on Saturday. And we we've talked about the hangover from European football uh, that have hit a lot of clubs in the last ten fifteen years, and very few teams tend to actually win the game after they play um, in in Europe in midweek, and it kind of stands the same for midweek matches um, unless they're both played obviously uh, so the lunchtime that lunchtime game used to be a curse for the likes of Arsenal if they got it after playing a midweek game and I, it, it's a perfect opportunity for Aston Villa it's a perfect opportunity for Stephen Gerrard he likes playing these big ga- games um, and his Aston Villa side have been performing like admirably probably in recent times they've, they've punched above their weight as we've said they've recovered from a poor start to the season they're comfortable where they are um, pushing for you know a top 10 finish most likely um, I think it's there for the taking for, for Villa if they want to take it. I think Arsenal are in for a rough week. That said, if Arsenal get four points out of these two games, you can probably say they have the top the top four guaranteed at that stage. But, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. Yeah, it's a pretty big week overall, I think, in the, both on and off the pitch in the landscape of football. So I'm sure there'll be plenty to discuss next week. So until then, thank you for being here, Andrew. And thank you for having me, Declan. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. This show can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. You can also subscribe to my own Medium page in the show notes. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Conbon27, C-O-N-B-O-N, and myself at CheesyHeartPun, C-H-E-E-S-Y-H-I-R-T-E-P-U-N. Most of all, thank you for listening, and we hope to be in your download feed next week too. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.